Welcome to The Leadership Mind. I'm your host, Massimo Bacchus. This show is about the stories, assumptions, and perspectives that either create or block our ability to lead. In this podcast, we'll speak with those that are in the arena, the leaders themselves. By trade and training, I'm a leadership coach and facilitator with a relentless curiosity for helping people, teams, and organizations thrive in pursuit of making their vision and purpose a reality. The goal is to bring you new insights, perspectives, and practices to help you lead authentically, navigate your career intentionally, and grow high-performing teams successfully. My hope is that in these episodes, you will witness humility, where we celebrate our failures as much as our successes. Curiosity, where we share wisdom and insights openly. And community, where we grow together. Let's explore the leadership mind. Hey, everyone. As I said, this episode is going to be a little bit different. And I wanted to use this opportunity to share my story so that you all could get to know me better, have a better understanding of where I come from, what makes up my philosophy around leadership, my approach to the work that I do, and and really the work that we all have to do in the world as leaders. As I share my story, I, I hope that you listen as I talk about my own missteps and the mentors that I've met along the way, the unexpected blessings, and those kind of pivotal moments. While they maybe didn't seem like they were a gift at the time, in hindsight, they certainly have been. And I want you to think about your own experience and who are those people that have been pivotal roles for you, whether they were mentors or challenging folks that you've encountered? What do you have great? What do you have to be grateful for from those experiences? How has it shaped the person that you are today and the leader that you are in your organization? You know, I have a fundamental philosophy of of two key words: surrender and abundance. And surrender meaning I am only in control of essentially my response to the stimulus that. I experience in the world around me and the rest of it is is out of my hands and there's a freedom that comes with that there's also a, a sense of ownership and there's boundaries that allow you to um, take responsibility for you know your 50 percent of the 100 percent within any given relationship and in the circumstances you find yourself in the second piece is around abundance and recognizing that there is enough for all of us Every human on this earth has a shared desire to do something, to have an impact, to help other people in some way. It's just a part of what we're here for. Now, unfortunately, not all of us are lucky enough to be able to find that and not only find out what it is, but to be able to position ourselves to be able to execute on it and give back. And I've been fortunate enough to be able to do that. And my story is... um, not straightforward, it's circuitous, it it was challenging many, many times, but the single thread that carried me through was this unrelenting pursuit of, I need to figure out what my why is. Once I found out what that was, I need to find out how I can go about executing on that why and try and have the biggest, most fulfilling impact um, one can. Uh, The author and and counselor, Richard Leiter says that, you know, success and fulfillment are are kind of two sides of the same coin. Success is um, our performance, our execution, you know, it's measured in external terms and fulfillment is measured in internal terms. And I think that a truly full life has both to whatever degree you need to be fulfilled. 
I grew up in Seattle, Washington. It's where I sit now, where I'm recording this episode in a very loving family. My parents are still married to this day. I have an older brother. He's an economics professor and uh, lives in Berlin, Germany. And we're all so close. And for all accounts, uh, a very, very privileged uh, and loving home and, and life that I had. My struggle, my strife in my youth and, and growing up was around being dyslexic. And growing up at a time where um, most people didn't really even understand what that meant beyond uh, you're a slow reader and you probably are horrible at spelling. And I didn't have the support that I needed. I didn't have the support that I needed to understand what it meant to understand that it was neurodiversity that I was dealing with, that I actually was uh, born with a different way of thinking, not a disability or a disorder, but just something that's different and something that's different that stands out in the context of our standard educational system, which was not designed with the dyslexic mind um, in the forefront. It, it, just, it just wasn't. And the emergence of dyslexia as a diagnosis stems from students being put into our educational system. And they were segregated quite literally into special ed classes because they were different, but they were different in the context of that setting. And so much of my story is about what I found once I got out of that setting, what I found my gifts were after I left um, an institution that was not designed for me. But there were many good things that came from my time in school. And I can imagine many of you listening also had the opportunity to have amazing teachers that were mentors that shared some insight. They saw something in you that maybe you didn't see in yourself at the time. And I was fortunate enough to have that. Uh, I'm a gregarious, outgoing kind of theatrical person. So it's not surprising that I was uh, kind of a theater uh, nerd in high school and participated in the spring musical and the fall play and all these different things. And I absolutely adored uh, the theater teacher and his name was Mr. Fleming. And Mr. Fleming kind of collected the Island of Misfit toys and the students that would typically come and participate in the plays. They were from all different walks of life. They were the, you know, the, the smart kids and the jocks and, and also those kind of misfit people that didn't necessarily belong in any one group. And being the energetic, all over the place person that I was, oftentimes getting in trouble and, and I think oftentimes misunderstood by, by teachers and I'm sure I wasn't doing myself any favors uh, to, to win them over. He saw something in me and he pulled me aside one day and he said, Moss, you're like a ball of energy. You are all over the place, but you have so much to offer. And if you could just focus that energy like a laser, who knows what would be possible? Now at the time, I, I must have been a, a sophomore or a junior. I felt seen. I felt heard. I felt recognized and appreciated, and that meant a lot to me. But I didn't necessarily know what that thing was that I was going to become laser focused on. Uh, but I did agree with him that I was a ball of energy and it was going all over the place. And I made a commitment to myself then that I needed to pursue what that was. And I don't know if it was so much a, a commitment in my mind, but almost a commitment in my heart. Um, it was a pursuit that I could not let go of. It was relentless. It was ruminating. It was, um, just embedded in the fiber of everything that I wanted to do to figure out what that was. 
unfortunately, it was many years later until I first came across what that might be. And those first years of, of searching and not finding were agonizing. I mean, it was really, really challenging to feel rudderless and so lost and, and know that um, I needed to kind of find my heading, but I didn't know what it was. Like everybody in my school, I went to college right afterwards because that was the thing to do, but I wasn't motivated to do it because I had some desire to take on a particular degree or that I knew after I graduated, I want to go and be become something in particular. It was just the thing to do. And halfway through my sophomore year, I realized that being a university because it's just the thing to do was not sufficient. It wasn't good enough. It didn't motivate me to get up and go to class. It didn't motivate me to do the work and to take advantage of the gift of being in a university uh, organization. And at the time I was at the University of San Francisco and I remember coming to the end of my first uh, semester of my sophomore year and I realized I, I can't do this anymore, uh, that I was not being honest with myself by being there. Uh, I wasn't being honest with my parents and, and my loved ones that, you know, were, were supporting me in being there. So I called my mom and dad and I said, I would like to drop out and come home. And uh, I don't know exactly what I'm going to do, but I know that right now this isn't the right place for me. And being the loving, supportive people as they are, they said, yeah, sure, come home. And my dad quickly followed up with, if you're going to move back home, you need to get a job which was fine by me because I didn't really want to be moving back at home with my parents at all, but it was kind of my only option in the moment. So I was happy to go out and find a job, but I was also a college dropout. So what do you do when you're a college dropout and you're looking for work and you need to make enough to pay the bills so you can move out of your parents' house at 20 years old? Uh, and I came across an opportunity to do door-to-door -door sales. It was a, uh, one of the few jobs that I was able to get and, and it seemed as good as anything else. Uh, working with other young people, I got to be outside a lot, I was gonna be talking with people all day, all these things that I love. And the hidden gift in this experience, after I got past the judgment and maybe a little bit of shame of like, I can't believe I'm doing door-to-door -door sales, was that one, I was naturally very good at it and incredible at connecting with people. Two, that because of the years that I've spent uh, dealing with dyslexia, living with dyslexia, I had built up a resilience that helped me because in door-to-door -door sales, like other sales, there's a lot of no's. And really what I was doing was working a, a law of averages of how many people can I talk to in today and find the right person that, that would say yes, or at least give me the time of day to, to hear me out. So I loved doing the sales. It was, it was fun, it was exhilarating, and I was good at it. And it was the first time in my life that my natural gifts could be put on uh, display, that they could be kind of committed to something that had tangible results that I could see every day. You know, all the time that I had spent in school before, I would put in all this effort and I would still come up short with my grades. And it just it wasn't matching up. Well, with the sales, every day I could go out and my hard work, my commitment to what I was doing delivered results. And it felt amazing. But even more surprising, what I loved even more than the selling itself was the other people that I sold with, finding out who they were, what they cared about, and helping to build them and build really impactful, successful sales teams. And I just couldn't get enough of it. The office that I worked in it was in a strip mall, 
There was a small front desk area, two management offices. You'd walk down a hallway, and then there was a big storeroom in the back that uh, they had converted with bright colors. And we'd go in in the morning, and we'd be playing music and um, getting ready for the day, determining kind of where we were going to be working out in the out in the region. And then at the end of the day, we would also come back to that same place and celebrate our successes and high five and cheer each other on for um, a successful day out there in the field. And every day I would get up most excited to go to those kickoff meetings, to be able to lead those kickoff meetings, to motivate this group of salespeople, to speak to the things that mattered most to them, to their purpose, to help give them the confidence and the skill, the skills that they needed to be successful in this line of work. And it wasn't lost on me that this wasn't a long-term gig, not only for myself, but for others. Um, and when the time was right, I would often encourage people to follow their dream that I knew wasn't doing the door-to-door -door sales, but was something else and pursue that because they were capable of so much more. And knowing that they left with more confidence than they walked in the door, that they learned something from this experience of talking to all these people and overcoming their fear of um, talking to strangers or, or even selling something that gave them a new skill and new confidence that they could take into their careers in life going forward. It lasted a year. I had a year of this. It felt like a lot longer, but I lasted a year in door-to-door -door sales and I realized still a college dropout. What is something else that I can do where I can continue to sell? But this time I wanted to make more money. And I took a role in commercial real estate, um, selling shopping centers and leasing up shopping centers predominantly. Some of it was with office space and warehouse, but mostly it was within uh, shopping centers and, and uh, malls and places like that. And while I loved the sales aspect of it as well, and I loved building all of the relationships with the clients and finding out the opportunities and negotiating the deals, I found myself talking to my clients more about their organizations and their leadership and what mattered to them in their business, what was working for them, what wasn't working for them. And I realized I was falling back into the same trap that I fell into doing door-to-door -door sales, which is it wasn't necessarily um, the operations of the business itself, but it was the development of the leadership skills of those that were doing that thing. And at this time, that ball of energy started to focus. The edges started to become more and more clear. I started to see my direction. I still had no idea at this time that there was a field that you could go into in industrial organizational psychology, that there were consultants and people that did this outside organizations as well as inside organizations. I didn't know what books to read. I, I wasn't even clear around what this field could be and I didn't know where to get an education. But I knew that I was on the right path and I was chasing this continual high that I got of doing this work, of building other people, of helping them get out of their own way to um, extinguish their fears or at least manage them differently so that they could pursue what they're put on this earth to pursue. The real estate thing came to a head and I, I finally came to the realization that this was not the right thing. And the crystal uh, of energy, this ball of energy had given me enough clarity to know I now have a purpose. I now have a heading. I learned that there was a field finally of organizational behavior in industrial organizational psychology and that there were universities out there that had programs that specialized in those. And I finally had that reason to go back to school. You know, at the time I left 
college and dropped out. At that time in my life, I thought it was the best decision I have ever made in my life. The second best decision I ever made was when I decided to go back. I started at Seattle University uh, pursuing a master's degree in psychology and having had some professional experience before, having had some time to just mature as a person, I came back into the university system as a completely different person than who I was before. I had purpose, focus, drive, dedication. I had a point of view. I knew where I wanted to take my education beyond uh, the walls of the university. And I had a strategy to make sure that I took full advantage of every opportunity that I could while I was there at the university. And I think this orientation in my drive uh, caught the interest of the Dean of the psych department named Dr. Kathleen Lavoy. And she was a godsend to me. And she took me under her wing and gave me opportunities um, that I don't know that other students would have gotten. And one of those opportunities was um, an internship as a, as a researcher for a, a boutique leadership development consulting firm also here in Seattle. And my first few months on that job, I was overwhelmed with the brilliance of the people that I worked with, the caliber of intellect of these PhDs in IO psychology, the really exciting work that they were doing around assessing leadership skills, building plans to develop those skills, working on succession planning, helping organizations determine what's at risk when they invest or, or buy an organization based on the leadership that's at the top and how to shore up those gaps if they exist. I also learned at that time, to quote Ted Lasso, that I, you could fill two internets with what I didn't know about leadership development organizational psychology. I had finally gotten my undergrad degree and I thought that I was doing pretty well and I was quickly humbled to learn that this field is so much bigger than I ever realized and I had so much more to learn. I spent about two years in that organization as a research associate and helping them build out some of their uh, leadership capabilities and recognizing that I had so much more to learn and that I wasn't going to be able to catch up to the brilliant minds of the people that I was working with. It was clear to me that I needed to go back to school again with the clarity and purpose. And now the ball of energy had completely converted into laser focus. And I attended Claremont Graduate University in Southern California for a master's degree in organizational behavior with the intent of staying on and, and pursuing a PhD to be just like my colleagues at that organization um, to someday either come back and work there or someday start my own consulting practice. That was the goal. That was the dream. My time at Claremont was um, nothing short of a kid in a candy store because it was a focused program and every other student that was there was interested in the same things as me. They were passionate about it. They were curious. The faculty was top tier. I learned more about statistics and methodology and research than I had ever thought that I would know before. And it helped me understand what was legitimate, reliable, valid research that existed, how to translate it, most importantly, how to translate the great research that had been done before and was being done to organizations and to leaders. Because that was the audience that I wanted to serve. But I wanted to make sure that I was bringing them the very best knowledge that we have about what makes peak performance in organizations. 
What causes our challenges with burnout? What are the relational constructs that exist within conflict? Incredible experience. And I absolutely um, am so grateful for the chance to go to that school. I had a decision point at the end of the master's degree whether to stay on for a PhD or not. And I realized my calling was to go out and do the work with the people. And I wanted to share the knowledge that I had and I, and I wanted to learn uh, in organizations and not stay in, in kind of the, the ivory tower to a sense of academia doing the research, but I wanted to test the research. I wanted to see what does this look like in practice? What sticks for people? What really matters uh, to the people doing the work, the leaders themselves? While at graduate school, I had an internship at Fox Entertainment, which was an incredible opportunity to work in that, uh, that industry in the space of talent development. And right afterwards, I took a role in San Francisco with Accenture. Now I had just finished my master's degree. This is coming from somebody who was at one time a college dropout, who had rebelled against the educational system and thought, I'm gonna prove them wrong. I'm gonna make a bunch of money in commercial real estate and I won't need to go back and get my college degree. I've now proven myself wrong more than once. And I remember my first meeting with my career counselor Accenture and they basically said to me, I don't care about your degree. I don't care about the theories that you've learned there or what you, you think you're an expert at. It doesn't matter unless you can deliver value and, and at the best performance levels for our clients. And it was a rude awakening. And um, while not welcomed necessarily in the way that it was delivered, I appreciated it because what it meant is I can be proud of myself for my accomplishments. For someone who's dyslexic to do the things that I've done, that's quite an accomplishment. But no one else is going to care. And they don't need to. And I, I need to get okay with that and, and be okay with that message. Um, and I just jumped in with both feet as you do in an organization like Accenture and I learned as much as I could. I was surrounded by incredibly smart, hardworking, dedicated, driven individuals. And it took everything in me to, to keep up with that pace of work. And I think I learned a tremendous amount um, working in organizations like Cisco and Sutter Health um, and a variety of other organizations doing specific work around culture. And I spent a lot of time on the road. I had been newly married and my wife and I were talking about starting a family and, and maybe getting back to Seattle from San Francisco. And so I moved back to Seattle. I was still traveling with Accenture, but I started looking for work in the Seattle area and was pretty lucky to land a role at an organization that I just always thought was just so cool. I just never imagined that I'd get to work there. And I was hired as a organizational development consultant at Nintendo of America. So that's the, the North American operations of Nintendo. Yes, Nintendo, the company that sells the video games and Mario. And it was an incredible treat coming from a very, very fast paced organization like Accenture, where you need to add value out of the gate on day one. My first day at Nintendo, my hiring manager named Tim Russell, took me around the campus to introduce me to people. And he reminded me that, you know, the first few weeks are not about doing anything, but about building relationships that in this culture at Nintendo, it was important you built relationships first and built trust before you did anything that people would believe in you. And then you know, you'd have buy-in. And I must've played video games a handful of times that day. And maybe even in the first week, 
Not that that was typical afterwards, but it just blew my mind. And it was very hard rewiring to go from the fast pace, delivering value immediately of Accenture to don't do anything. In fact, if you do, it will ruffle feathers. Be slow, be intentional, build relationships. But I quickly came to love the culture there and the people and their love of the brand and their love of the product. And to work in an organization where, I mean, to a person is as in love with the brand and the experience that the brand creates as they are the people that they work with. It was a, a really lovely place to be very familial, collegial, supportive. And I'm really proud of the work that I did there. And I'm really proud of the opportunity that I had to work with such an amazing team that was built under Tim's leadership. To this day, uh, in my experience, he's hands down the, the, best, uh, the best leader, the best um, organizational operator and builder of a team that I've ever had the privilege of working with. And everyone on that team was committed to each other, supportive. We weren't competitive with one another. Instead, we just wanted to find out how we could support each other in their work. And we're excited to jump in and, and offer a helping hand or a, or a different perspective, or maybe some additional expertise that might enrich what they were creating. A few years into my time at Nintendo, Tim uh, left to take another role. And it was a big loss to have such a, a critical leader that really established the culture of our team and, and really was, um, kind of a, so much of a part of the culture of the entire HR department. Those were big shoes to fill. And the rest of the team there, we rallied together and continued to do the best work that we could. Um, but in absence of good leadership and, um, and the direction that that provided, the team, I think, started to, to fizzle. And we're so happy to be at Nintendo, didn't want to leave, but, but the, that, uh, that buzz that we once had was, was missing. So a year after Tim left, when he gave me a call and he said that he had had an opportunity for me, potentially at the company that he went to, Slalom Consulting, needless to say, it piqued my interest. Uh, I wasn't quite as in, in, engaged in, in what things were happening at Nintendo at the time, and an opportunity to work with Tim again um, was something that I would have jumped at the chance to do. And the role that I ended up taking on at Slalom was leading global leadership development um, for all of their leaders. Slalom is a global consulting firm, and this was doing consulting for the consultants and, and the consultant leaders. Um, from new managers, first-time managers, newly promoted managers, or, or those that are joining the organization, all the way up to um, the senior and executive levels with different programs. But I, I joined at a time where they had already laid the groundwork. The talent management team had done phenomenal work creating best-in-class leadership development programs and philosophies that were already embedded in the business and that were fully bought into by the leaders. The executives themselves had had transformational experiences coming out of these programs and were obviously invested and wanted to continue to promote these and, and um, give access to as many people as possible what these programs were. So to come into an organization that was so primed and ready to be able to do that work and to take on a team to help build upon that and expand it as the, the company was rapidly growing and growing even more internationally was, you know, I thought I had arrived. I was like, this is the greatest, this is the greatest job now. Just um, let's tie a bow on it. I'm done. And 
for all the amazing work that I was able to do in traveling around the country and working with so many incredible leaders and watching them go through their own transformation and journey and realizing that what got them here won't get them there and that they were doing things that were holding them back that they weren't even aware of and that once they had that self-awareness, that self-management, that relationship awareness and relationship management, that they could open up a completely new level to what's possible for them as leaders and the impact that they could have, not only for Salaam, for their teams, but also for our clients. What I also learned as I built my team is that I flat out sucked as a manager. Now, I may have been great at helping other people become great managers and coaching them and developing them. That's one thing. But to be a manager myself is something that I really struggled with. And it came with a lot of hard conversations and honest feedback from my team. And what I struggled with is, but my heart is in the right place. I care about these people. I want what's best for them. I was so in love with my intention that I overlooked the impact of my actions. And I would just keep going back to, but I'm trying really hard and I could not figure out why my intent and my actions were not lined up. And the behavior that was showing up for me is that I would get defensive when people would question my work. Or if they'd ask me too many questions about something at all, I'd get defensive because I didn't know the answer or because I thought they were challenging me. That when I delegated, I didn't give very clear expectations around delegation, but my expectations were always everybody needed to perform at the highest bar. You can imagine how frustrating it would be to have a manager that had really high expectations, but they weren't explicitly stated. And that there wasn't the appropriate feedback to help the person get there. It was this crazy uh, paradigm, this paradox of the coach and the player. You know, I was great there as the, as the player out in the field, but, you know, the coach for my own team, I really struggled with that. And I was fortunate enough to um, be introduced to a program called the Hoffman Process. It's a week-long retreat. It was in Northern California. And it's really all about identifying what are your triggers? What are those patterns? For me, it was like, why do I keep responding defensively to something? I've received feedback that I do it. I'm aware that I do it. And yet I can't seem to stop doing it. Why is that? And I went through this experience and I learned more about myself in that week than ever before. And it fundamentally changed my life. It changed me to my core. And it gave me a greater sense of self-awareness that I had never had before around where is this coming from? And that defensiveness comes from a place of not being enough and feeling like I'm a fraud and needing to prove myself. And some of that stems from growing up in a school and being dyslexic and feeling like I'm a fraud and I don't belong and I never fit in because that's the data that my young mind took in. And none of this is to say that um, I condone any of my behavior or my poor performance at times as a manager, but all of our bad behavior is meaningless unless we can seek to understand where it comes from and then change it. And that's the core of the work that I do today. It's the core of the, of the work that I've been doing throughout my career is helping leaders understand what is at the core of these behaviors that we want to change. And the good news is we're entirely in control of it. It is a surrender and a recognition that without judgment, we have an opportunity to improve. And it's no one else's responsibility other than our own to do it. That's what makes it hard. And that's what makes it leadership. I learned that 
The quality of my being and the quality of my doing were not aligned. I learned that I was eroding trust in relationships, not because I wanted to, but because the quality of my being was coming from a place that did not feel safe, secure, and supported, that I needed to compensate for something. And it was only when I learned that I don't need to compensate for anything, that I belong just as I am, there's always room for improvement, but that I earn my place at the table and that everyone else there also earned their place at the table, that we all belong, that I open myself up for different conversations and hearing feedback differently and opening myself up to relationships differently and recognizing that I do not have to have all the right answers. And in fact, many cases I don't, but that's why we work around other smart people because they do. What I want you to take away from this is that what makes me a leader today is not my credentials, my degree, um, the different jobs that I've held or the organizations that I've been through. What makes me a leader today are my experiences along the way. The resilience that has come from my suffering, the empathy and compassion that I can have for others that comes from my challenges. The one thing that I have taken away from all of the, the development work that I've done for myself and that I recognize in every person that I work with, whether it be a leader, a team, or an organization, that we all lack the capacity for self-compassion. We all hold ourselves to an unattainable high standard. We all want to be the best, and by definition, we cannot all be the best, and yet we continually pursue that. We look on social media and our peers, and we're comparing ourselves upward and downward of who is better, who's the best, what do I need to do to be the best. And while that at times can be a helpful motivator, it does not lead to a happy, fulfilled life. While it can lead to success, it will not lead to fulfillment. A mantra that I use on a daily basis to help me stay grounded in this place of self-compassion is to not judge myself, to not judge others, and to not judge the process. To not judge myself means, yes, I will make mistakes. I will have errors. I might get things wrong. I might not have the best idea. But to not be overly critical of myself about that, but instead be curious, and what can I learn? And from that place of curiosity and learning, there comes improvement and better collective ideas. To not judge others means to give other people space for grace to actually practice empathy and compassion for other people, to seek to understand where are they coming from. They may not say something that I like, but instead of defending against that, seeking to understand what is it that they're trying to say? What is, what is the need that they have that might not be met? And lastly, not judging the process is all about whatever context we're in. Right now, this process is me talking to you in this podcast and you're listening to it. So judge the context of what this is. The process could be a meeting that you're in or a conversation that you had or an argument that you had. However you showed up in this, whenever we have judgment, we are not able to be curious. And it is in the curiosity that we can align our quality and being, that we can practice self-compassion, and that we can show up in the way that we want to from a place of leadership. Now, I've mentioned self-compassion a few times, and I just want to shout out to Dr. Kristen Neff, who is phenomenal and is the preeminent thought leader in this space. And her work is incredible. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, check out her book, um, Self-Compassion. Go to the Self-Compassion website. There's a bunch of resources and materials there. 
simply put, self-compassion is can we treat ourselves with the same um, care and kindness that we would to our coworkers or to our friends or to our loved ones? When we make mistakes, when we don't get the promotion, when life doesn't go the way that we want, um, when we're not seen as the best and brightest, even though we want that so badly, can we offer compassion to ourselves? And there's three key components to it. The first is mindful awareness. So recognizing when you're stressed or when you're feeling triggered without judgment or overreacting. Key, without judgment or overreacting, just recognizing what am I feeling? I'm feeling defensive, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling angry. Whatever it is that you're feeling, but to not have a judgment of it, but to be aware of what it is. The second piece is self-kindness. As I said before, to be able to treat yourself as you would a friend, to recognize uh, my friends also get angry at times. My spouse or partner also gets angry and frustrated and anxious at times. And this leads to the third piece is that we're all connected in this. We all make mistakes and we're not alone. And so we, we can, when we can take the pressure off of ourselves that we need to be perfect and have all the answers and recognize that some days are good and some days are challenging, every day is a gift, but we're connected in this experience, it helps us have compassion for what our experience is. And these could be moments of self-compassion that lead to clarity and being grounded and helping you show up as your best self. Over the coming months, I'm going to be putting out a lot more information on self-compassion and, and how this weaves into our role in leadership. I believe that it is the single most important thing. And if you strip down uh, all leadership concepts to, to the core of what makes someone show up as their best in order to serve others and to lead others, it is a capacity for self-compassion. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Leadership Mind. Remember, the mind is the connection between our being and doing, our intent and our actions. Make sure to visit our website, MassimoBacchus.com, where you can like and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Anchor FM, and Apple, so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found the episode valuable, please rate the podcast on your preferred platform or share it with your community. Until next week, remember to lead with compassion, curiosity, and gratitude. Great leadership is a gift.